0: This is the Lady Landlord's Podcast, and I am your host, Becky Novak. This podcast is for women looking to achieve financial independence through real estate investing. Let's get this episode going. Hi, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Lady Landlords podcast. I am your host, the founder of Lady Landlords, Becky Nova, and I am joined by Timothy Hero today. I am really excited to deep dive into what Timothy does in helping people find non traditional lending. So, Timothy, thank you so much for being here today. How are you?
1: I'm good, Becky. How are you?
0: I'm good. Um, I love the Christmas tree you got going on behind me. Fantastic. Thank
1: you.
0: Um, so what I would love to kind of start off with today is just share a little bit about yourself and and who you are, if you could.
1: Yeah. So I am a private mortgage broker for non-traditional lenders. Um, right now I, I live in Richmond, Virginia. I'm from South Florida. Um, my, my main focus is helping rental, uh, investors get financing that they can't go the traditional bank route. Um, These lenders offer uh, fewer docs needed, um, 30-year fixed mortgages, and that sort of thing. So I connect investors to lenders that work best for their situation.
0: Gotcha. I know a lot of our listeners are going to be really interested in hearing a little bit more about that criteria because there are so many people in situations where they really need to kind of get outside of traditional lending. But I would love to hear how you even got into this job. How did you even find this role?
1: It was actually by accident. So before, <laughs> before all of this, I was a, what I call a failed realtor in 2017. Um, I moved from South Florida to Richmond. I spent all my money moving up here. So when I became a realtor, I had no money for marketing. Um, I had some family, but they lived, you know, 30, 40 minutes away and there weren't enough leads coming in or anything like that. So after 17 months, I never sold a single house, but I knew so much about real estate being around it since I was young. I knew where the money was. I knew where my passion was. So I knew I wanted to stay somewhere in real estate. So I went back to work in a bunch of uh, retail jobs and that sort of thing for a couple of years. And I decided since I love math, I love numbers, I was going to look into becoming a loan officer. And since I was coming from attempting to sell real estate and dealing with real estate brokers... I went on Google and instead of typing, become a loan officer, I mixed loan officer with broker and came across loan broker. And at first I thought, you know, it's, it's not a a, a legit thing. It's not a real thing, but I read into it. I learned about it. Um, I started connecting with investors. Um, When I joined the industry, I was actually messaging 300 to 500 investors a day to, um, market myself. I did this for about a month. And my third month in the industry, I closed two deals and I quit my nine to five. Instantly, I saw it was legit. (laughs) The rest is history.
0: Oh, that's great. One thing that you said in there I wanted to ask about was you said that you were around real estate a lot when you were a child. How did that play out?
1: So my mom and stepfather, they got together when I was 12 years old and they remodeled home still to this day. So while they don't flip homes themselves, they work for flippers and, and remodel the homes for uh, uh, homeowners for the personal residents, flip properties, you name it. Um, so I was always going to job sites and, and learning that side of it. And mm-hmm. even growing up, I spent a lot of time looking at luxury homes and, and learning the financial markets. It's, it's something that I've always had a passion for. And I've always stuck with real estate since I was 12 years old.
0: That's great that it's really kind of prepared you for then mm-hmm. where you are today. Yeah. You didn't know it back at the time, but it's no. interesting that all these little different things, either seeing then what your parents were doing, then become being a realtor and working in that industry and kind of getting to know the ins and outs of the industry has really put you in such a place to set you up for success now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It it really has. It, it was a bunch of stepping stones. Um, even when I first joined the mortgage side, I closed those two deals. And then the next month, I think I only closed one but it was a stepping stone to get to where I am now. So it's all in yeah. progress.
0: And can you talk a little bit more about than where you are now?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So right now, here we are at the end of the year, um, projected to do about 18 million this year in mortgages. Um, mm-hmm. Some deals might get delayed till January, just because the holidays is part of the game. Um, I have a full-time assistant um, and we're projecting 50 million next year, which is a huge uh, thing because I joined the industry in the fourth quarter of 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, and I only worked a few months in 2020 because of COVID. I mean, COVID shut the whole yeah. market down for four months. And then when the market opened back up for the first two months, it was hard to get anybody approved because lenders had higher credit uh, requirements. Um, since these loans are based on the cash flow, of the property rates were so high that people couldn't get the max LTV because they didn't cash flow at 7%. Um, so I really only worked a couple months last year. So 2021 was my first full year in the business with no distractions. So to hit 18 million was a huge milestone. So
0: yes, that is, that is huge. Timothy, you should be really proud of the fact of what you've built in in such a short time too. Um, That's really fantastic. What would you say would be the key to your success over this past year?
1: I, I definitely, got to put it networking has has been everything um, mm-hmm. but I, I think remaining loyal um, I see a lot of brokers charging you know a very high fee to assist um, with loans I've always kept my fees low to put myself in the investors shoes to really show that I'm in their corner to save them on cost while still finding them the best lender um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and letting them know when they have their best deal or not like I I have a lot of repeat clients and they keep coming back to me because I delivered what I promised. Um, This is an industry where a lot of people will lie to you to get your foot in the door. So you start the progress uh, process. And then later on they hit you with the reality of the terms and things change and they hope you'll stay in the deal. I've never put my clients in a situation like that. So I think my obsession with networking and my uh, loyalty has been a huge part of
0: it. And from our side as the investors, mm-hmm. trust me when I say that we also want to find somebody that we can be loyal to. We yeah. don't want to every time we do a deal to have to say, "Oh, well now we need a new realtor and now we need a new lender and now right. I need a new attorney." We want to make sure to find people that we can have repeat business with. So yeah. it sounds like you're really setting yourself up for success in that way of saying that this is kind of a key value for how you like to work with people. So so, I really appreciate that.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, can you walk us through a little bit of the differences between your mortgage broker with traditional lending mm-hmm. versus then you as a mortgage broker with non traditional lending?
1: Okay. So, for the traditional side, um, most of them to get to even get a quote, you often have to do an application. Um, some will even want to run credit. On the non traditional side, They don't even run credit unless you decide to move forward with the deal. Um, On the non-traditional side, there's a lot fewer docs to collect. Um, This is a newer industry that many may not know about. Most of this was created in 2014, the non-QM sector. Um, There's no income statements. uh, There's there's no tax returns. There's there's none of that. Um, There's no DTI check. It's solely based on credit score and the cash flow of the property. So any income thing isn't looked upon in this industry, whereas the conventional side it's two years tax returns, your monthly bills and debt. And it's, it's a lot easier of a process. And because of this, we're able to close quicker too.
0: Gotcha. So would a lot of the people that come to you be people that either are Mm self-employed that maybe don't have high income, or maybe they have high debt to income ratio? Like what are the trends of the people that are typically finding you that can best use your services?
1: I I would say about 50% of borrowers who come to the non-traditional side are self-employed. And I'd say the other 50% is a mixture of people who might work a W-2, but don't want the loans on their credit. And the non-traditional side, they're not reported on credit. So there's no max of mortgages. I can close 30 mortgages with the same borrower in a year if I wanted to, if they wanted to. so th- those, those two things, um, and we also lend to LLCs. Most banks won't do that. I believe some credit unions will, but most conventional banks won't. So lending to LLCs, um, not reporting on credit, um, qualifying self-employed people, th- those are the three major factors. And there's no limit to mortgages, whereas conventional, you're maxed at 10.
0: I like that. That's yeah. something I feel like people don't really think about is what are we going to do after when we kind of hit that max, if they really yeah. are expecting to grow a larger portfolio. So mm-hmm. that's really great to know that working with you, that they can actually make it past that 10. Mm-hmm. And also that this is not affecting their credit or then their debt to income right. ratio in case they need a traditional lending for some type of other purpose. So, yeah. so when people do come to you then, since there isn't the same application process as it would be for a conventional loan. What types of information do you try to collect during that first phone call with somebody?
1: So the main thing is uh, credit score. Um, we just need at least a six hundred and twenty. Seven hundred and higher gets you the best terms. Uh, most lenders' top tier is seven hundred and forty or seven hundred and sixty. Um, so we need credit score. Um, we need address to do some research on the property to make sure it's not too rural. Um, and then we need to see the numbers for cash flow. We need. The value of it the rent amount taxes insurance we need to see the cash flow numbers and that's honestly enough to determine the approval process um we then send over a quote and if those numbers work for them they send over an application which is much much shorter than conventional i mean some of my (laughs) lenders got one page applications and it's it's three minutes to complete um so we pull credit one time we pull it in the beginning and it doesn't get pulled again like the most conventional route, we'll pull it at the end again. Uh, Private lenders, credit's good for 90 days. And it usually doesn't take 90 days to close a loan. So we just closed a six property portfolio and four weeks flat. So 90 days is when credit expires, but we usually don't have to pull it a second time. So that's usually how the process is for that.
0: Gotcha. You had mentioned in there that you have to make sure that the property isn't too rural. So Mm -hmm. can you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. So they base it on... uh, population density. Um, there's sometimes where somebody sends me an address and I tell them, I don't think this will work because it's a town of 8,000 people. Um, and I'll send it to my list of lenders and comes back. One of my lenders will do it, but maybe they'll just reduce LTV by 5%. So if this person wanted to cash out 75, they'll be maxed at 70, but nobody else in the industry will touch it. So to get 70% cash out on a 30 year fix, not reported on credit, is better than what i had thought would have happened so <laughs> so they, just
0: out of curiosity why why is it that you know kind of these lower population areas are looked upon differently
1: um i think the main reason is if the tenant moves out or stops paying and, and gets evicted they view it as more of a risk of a sitting property that won't be easily occupied Whereas if you're in a big town like Dallas, Texas, the property hits the market within three days. Fifty people have applied for it. You know, so
0: (laughs) as a New Yorker, I definitely understand that. I could rent places, you know, two days before the end of the month. People don't even look earlier than that. You just wait to the very end, Um, and our vacancy rates are are very low. So okay, that definitely makes sense. And then also some other things that I've heard in that same category is about properties not being, uh, not being enough money? Do you have a cap that you only lend if a property is worth at least a certain amount?
1: Yeah, so it, it, every lender has their different uh, criteria, but for the most part, they're in the same range. Um, they don't want to go under $100,000 property value if it's a single asset. If you're doing a portfolio, I can go all the way down to 50,000 a unit. So a 50,000 a unit yeah, if it's so a portfolio loan. Yeah. So a four unit would need to be $200,000, you know, that, that sort of thing Uh, in terms of the max on the other side, there's no max. Uh, So we can do $4 million properties. Um, Once you go over a loan amount of 2 million, they typically have to go to a committee and get approved. But if the person's Mm -hmm. got good credit at cash flows, it's in a healthy market. I've never had one decline.
0: Okay. And then you had also mentioned about um, needing the address then to get that approval. So mm-hmm. I can see some people kind of being in a situation where they, one, need the pre-approval to kind right. of get the property, but then on the other hand, in order to get the pre-approval, you would need the address. So right. how do people kind of end up in that situation where it's kind of the chicken or the egg?
1: So for the pre-approval side on the purchase side, if somebody comes to me and they're like, I wanna write an offer on this property, but my realtor wants me to have a pre-approval before I waste anybody's time, um, they can complete a quick sheet and I can send it over to my lenders and I can have one lender pull credit if the borrower approves and then we can get a pre-approval. And this industry, it's very fast. I get pre-approvals in 30 to 60 minutes. So it's, it's very quick, assuming, you know, it's not too late in the day or something, but yeah, we'll run, we'll just run credit and then we'll go off there. um, uh, Property numbers that they believe. So if they tell us, I want to buy this property for 200, I believe it'll rent for 17. That's a decent cash flow in property. So that part's taken care of. Now, if they pass the credit thing, we can give them a pre approval.
0: So now, when talking about that cash flow, mm-hmm. so how do you really verify what those rents would actually be to analyze if the property would cash flow since that's really what you're lending on?
1: Right. So the, the first step is we go off their hypothetical of, I think it'll rent for this, their theory. Um, as they move forward on the deal, whether it's a refi or a purchase, we send out an appraiser and the appraiser gives a market rent. Um, lenders usually go off the lower of the two. Um, if, if somebody tells us, I think the property will rent for 2000 a month, I want to buy it If the appraiser goes out there and says, no, it's a $1,700 a month property. Lenders are going to go off that 1700. Now some lenders will do a hybrid m- model and take the middle number of the two. Um, but I always tell people to be safe. Let's assume it goes off the lower amount. What do you think it would rent for?
0: Gotcha, which is really smart. So, okay, so it's really the appraiser that's making the determination right. about what that rent would actually be. Right. And then are there any other numbers or anything else that you factor in to the property being cash flowing besides then your rents?
1: Yeah, taxes and insurance. Um, okay, Taxes or insurance is something we usually... Don't know the exact number on until you know the property's been back from appraisal and everything. Uh, that that usually gets taken care of midway of the deal. Sometimes towards the end, it's not too often taxes ruin the cash flow of a deal, but taxes can be pretty high. Property taxes. Um, <laughs> As Illinois I say, in very, New York,
0: they might.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, Illinois <laughs> that might is be very something. high. You know, you throughout the country, it's very common to see one point two five percent of the value for taxes. Colorado um, has some of the lowest in the country. Um, Illinois has some of the highest. Illinois, you can very often pay 2% a year in taxes. So a $400,000 property, you can pay 8,000 a year in property taxes. So it's very important that people come to us with reasonable numbers. Uh, I have people who come to me and the taxes seem a little too low. I mean, I've had people come to me with houses near me and a three hundred thousand yeah. dollar home isn't going to have property taxes of seven hundred a year. That that doesn't add up. <laughs> so <laughs> it's very good to be reasonable upfront. Um, that way, we're working with real numbers because we're going to find out the real numbers before closing. And you don't want to find out at the end we have to reduce the loan amount because it doesn't cash flow because those numbers came in much higher.
0: And then, really, people would be doing themselves a dis- disservice if they're not actually giving you the numbers. If they come to you and they say, hey, I've got an 800 credit score, the rent, you know, the property is one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, but hey, it rents for five grand a month, yeah. you know, and all oh, the taxes are fifty bucks, right? Like, <laughs> you'd be like, yeah, of course I can lend on that, but when yeah. it then comes down to closing, it's just not going to work because you're right. gonna you're gonna find out. There's no way yeah. that you're not doing your due diligence so that all oh, because somebody tells you these things that you're going to lend just based on that information, you're gonna right. find out. So it's really yeah. in everybody's best interest to give the right numbers. And we understand maybe not everything is perfect and exact and, and very clear at the very beginning, but we want to make our, we really do want to use our best guesses here. Yeah. yeah.
1: It's okay to be off by a little bit. If you tell me your property taxes are 1200 a year and it comes in at 1350, it's $150 difference spread out over a year. That's not, it's a little more than $10 10 a month. Yeah. (laughs) that's fine. But if you say it's 1,200 and it comes back at, you know, 2,100, now we're talking difference in cash flow. So.
0: Yes. And then with that cash flow, is there a certain amount of cash flow that you would require? Would you be like, great, this property makes $1.
1: Here's your loan. (laughs) (laughs) So lenders have a DSCR, debt service coverage ratio. Every lender requires a different amount. Um, Most lenders right now is 1.1 or 1.2, which Means we want to see a cash flow of at least 10% more than what the mortgage will be, and that mortgage is covering everything—the uh, principal, interest, taxes—you know everything. If your mortgage is a thousand bucks a month with everything included, we want to see the property rents for at least 1,100. If it does, then you'll be able to get the max LTV. That—that's that's the approval side. We need a not only a prop, not, not only a property that rents to cover the the mortgage, but also a little left over.
0: Gotcha, and then also, so that also would take um, into consideration what the down payment somebody would be making would be, right? Correct.
1: Yeah, because if somebody has a property that only meets that one point one DSCR, if it's seventy percent loan to value, then that means the most we can lend is seventy percent. So they got to put thirty percent down versus the twenty. So the cash flow determines the max LTV you can get.
0: Gotcha. So let's talk about that for a second. Down payments. Mm -hmm. Do you in all situations require some skin in the game Mm -hmm. from an investor?
1: Yeah, it's 20 to 25%, assuming no cash flow issues. Yeah.
0: Gotcha. What is your opinion when you hear other lenders kind of saying, oh, I could give you 100%. Oh, there's this. Like, what does that kind of raise for you?
1: I'll, I'll say this. if Those lenders were legit my lenders wouldn't be in business. (laughs) Right? (laughs) If if my lenders only lend 80% and the people next door lend 100, my people wouldn't be doing 500 million a year in mortgages. So maybe you could find an individual investor that's willing to loan 100%. But as of right now, as we speak, there's no actual company that does it. Um, Most of these lenders... They get their money from the same capital partners oftentimes. Um, If you put 20 companies in a room, they probably share the same three or four capital partners. And the capital partners are the ones who make the rules. So unless these 100% lenders have their own capital partners that nobody knows about, (laughs) I, I don't find it to be true.
0: And there's usually not too many people out there with like millions of dollars right. that nobody knows about, right? Or that are not doing anything with it. Yes, yeah. you can absolutely find then that private lender or somebody in that situation that might be a kind of one-off. But yeah, once again, there's investor. but there's not kind of the individual investors. Yes, but you're not exactly. There's not banks. There's not no. lenders out there being like, yes, we will give you a hundred percent of this. They really need you to kind of have that skin in the game, so that's why it's perfectly reasonable that you and other lenders are looking for that twenty twenty five percent. But I hear that you're also saying in certain situations, in order to make the numbers work, an investor might have to put in a little bit more money to get to that DSCR. Correct.
1: Right. Right. And that that depends on the market. Like I don't I don't do deals in California. I can, but they often don't cash flow well enough. I've had people come to me with $600,000 homes which is very cheap in california $600,000 yeah. homes and it only rents for like 2800 a month that the max cash the max loan you can do on that's like 55 60% ltv so that really determines everything so it it depends on the market um, for the most part especially cuz we're in a market where rents are high very high there's no mm-hmm. there's no supply but there's so much demand But right now, we're not seeing too much of a cash flow issue because the LTV, we need low rates to give a better cash flow, and we need high rents to help. And right now, we have both of those. So there's Mm -hmm. not too much cash flow issues restricting LTV right now.
0: Can you, you've used the um, acronym a couple times, LTV. Can you describe for some of our listeners that might not be familiar what that means?
1: Yeah, so that just means loan to value. Um, it's very important to realize on the purchase side, it stays LTV as loan-to-value. Because a lot of people come to me and they're like, I'm buying a property for 200000 I see you do 80% loan-to-value, but I'm buying a $200,000 property that's worth three hundred. dollars So will you loan 80% of the $300,000? Lenders are always going to view the value as the lesser amount. If you're buying a $300,000 property for two they're going to view it as a $200,000 property and give you 80% of that which would be 160. Um, if you're buying a, a $200,000 property, but it's worth a hundred and it appraises for a hundred, they're gonna give you 80% of the hundred. So they're always gonna go off the lower of the two to protect themselves, but LTV just means uh, a loan to value.
0: Perfect, thank you very much. That's, that's gonna be really helpful for some of our newer investors out there um, when kind of looking into that. So got it. So now you have people that are coming to you that maybe don't have the traditional W-2 or they do, but they don't want this to show up on them, their credit or they've right. already hit their tax portfolios. They're coming to you, they have that address, they're able to kind of share those numbers with you um, as best and most accurate as they kind of can. And then you're really looking for what that cash flow is gonna be on that property. About, you'd mentioned closing costs before that, sorry, you mentioned closing time before. What would you say is your average turnaround time to get a loan
1: closed? So that, especially in today's market varies very wildly because if somebody comes to me with a single asset, uh, just wants to do a single property refinance, and let's say a popular city like Tampa, Florida, Mm -hmm. we can close that in three, three and a half weeks, assuming, you know, no holidays, the appraisals done decent, you know, timeframe. Um, whereas somebody who comes to me with a portfolio, in a semi-rural town where there's only eighteen appraisers in the whole town, yeah. we're gonna we're gonna spend three or four weeks just waiting on appraisals because the market they're in. And now we're waiting on you know fifteen or twenty appraisals because it's a portfolio. So, a single asset loans are typically three and a half to four weeks. But if you're not in a very big market, it can be five weeks. Um, in terms of portfolio, depends on the market you're in and how many properties you're doing. Those are typically five to six weeks can be up to eight if it's a big portfolio um, Mm -hmm. and a semi-rule market. Um, But overall, I'd say for four weeks or so for a single asset.
0: And which means then much, much faster also than traditional lending.
1: Yeah, I've I've had people come to me and (laughs) the private sector right now has gone down so much in rates, especially with the traditional lending's uh, 7% rule. um, We're pretty close to conventional these days in rates. Um, Before COVID, conventional was always like a full percent lower. I have cash out Mm -hmm. refis that I quote at four point five percent, and the bank will quote my client at four point three. So we're only twenty basis points higher. We're not on your credit. It's easier approval. It's quicker. Why not just go that route? But I have people who will say I decided to go conventional, and no hard feelings. You got to do what's best. And two and a half months goes by and they come back and they're like, yeah, we still haven't closed that. I just want to do it with you. Let's move forward. And I'm like, "Interesting. no disrespect, but I forgot about your deal overall. I (laughs) thought that had been closed. That was two and a half months ago. So yeah, conventional can take forever.
0: Yes. A hundred percent. There's so many different little things that can kind of get in the way. And as we're talking about earlier in the episode, there's so much of that paperwork and so many things. Yeah. I mean, I think all of us that have bought properties, there's nothing worse when you're like, okay, we're supposed to be closing tomorrow. And then you get that, that dreaded email from your mortgage broker being like, hey, can you send me your credit card statement again yeah. from last month? Oh, you know, I need, I also need this credit card or I need that savings account. And you're just like, we've gone through all this. Like I've sent you my first born, like what do you mean? You still need that one more credit card statement or yeah. that one more that one more thing, and once again, it sounds like this really just alleviates all of that extra stress or that just paperwork that needs to be kind of sent back and forth, which saves everybody a lot of time and energy. so I like yeah. hearing that um, so I know you would mention then with getting that that appraisal is really so important for right. this type of lending. So that's a that's a fee that then the buyer would have to then pay for. What other fees are included in these types of loans that may be different than traditional lending?
1: Yeah. So at the, every lender in this private space usually has the same fee; it's just a different amount. Um, they all have an underwriting fee. If you're doing a single asset, this underwriting fee can go from can range from twelve hundred to sixteen hundred per property. If you're doing a portfolio loan, it's usually discounted. Like you'll pay the full price for one property. And then every property after that is maybe like half the fee. So you save a lot in fees there. So there's the underwriting. There is uh, prepaying escrow and taxes for a year. They all require that the same thing. Then there's the origination. The origination, a lot of people don't know this is actually optional. Most do mm-hmm. 1% origination because every origination point you buy, typically in this market right now we're in, is worth half a percent on the rate. So if I quote you 5% um, on the rate, no origination, you're saving up front. But if you do one origination point, it knocks it all the way down to 4.5% on the rate. So wow. the origination can vary. You can buy it all the way down to like four origination points or you can pay no origination So that that is really dependent on what you as the investor want to do. So there's that, there's the underwriting, that there's a broker involved. Typically a broker fee is 1% to 2%. I usually just charge a flat 1%. Um, Going back to what we stated about being in their corner and helping with fees. Then there's the prepay. Um, If you're doing a refinance uh, cash out, all these fees come out of the loan. So you don't have to come to the table. The only thing you would pay out of pocket is the appraisal. And sometimes, depending on the lender, they require a $90 appraisal review fee. Um, those are the only out-of-pocket. <laughs> but 90
0: bucks. I think, yeah. you know, <laughs> I think if you're kind of in this game, right, and you're putting your 20% down, I think that 90 bucks is, is rather reasonable compared to yeah. some of those other fees that, um, that we get during loans. So yeah. I think that one, I think most of us would be able to handle, right?
1: Yeah, I hope so. Because you need to show six to 12 months reserves that you can make six to 12 months of the monthly payment if your tenant moves out. So I hope you have the 90 to cover that.
0: <laughs> okay. So that's actually, that's interesting. So a six to 12 month. So how does it gonna kind of get determined if it's going to be closer to the six side or the 12 side?
1: So it depends on the lender. Um, okay. Sometimes lenders will even do like a, dare I say, one-off scenario where if somebody comes to us and they got a lower credit score at mid 600, this lender might usually require six months reserves, but to approve their deal with a good LTB and everything, they might say, if you want the best terms, we are gonna want 12 months to make sure you have the money, that there will be no default. Um, right. And when it comes to reserves, it's actually easier than most would expect. 95% of my deals never have a problem with reserves. Um, so you only need six or 12 months, depending on the lender of the monthly payments. Um, so if it's a thousand dollar month mortgage, you need either 6,000 or 12,000. But a lot of people think that has to be sitting in the bank. It can be in stocks. It can be in retirement account. It can be in all these different things. So, and unlike conventional, it's not audited. Like you could have borrowed it from a family member four months ago. We're not going to ask you, is this $8,000 yours though? You know, it's not (laughs) something that is audited. We see it's in your account, your name's on the statement. You got the reserves onto the next thing.
0: Gotcha. And then that's really something that if you so then choose to give it back to that family member the day after closing.
1: Which happens. And then
0: you can't make your mortgage, then right. that's, that's kind of, a, that's a you thing. That's, a, yeah, that, that's, that's, under that's your you. responsibility.
1: <laughs> right.
0: Gotcha. Um, and then if some in that case, once again, hopefully this isn't the situation, if somebody then defaults on that, is that kind of go through then your typical foreclosure or is that process different if somebody defaults on their mortgage?
1: So surprisingly, none of my clients have defaulted at least to the best okay. of my knowledge <laughs> um so far right but uh-huh so the way it works is they can only legally go after what they're owed a lot of people are like is it a non-recourse or a recourse and i don't want them coming after my personal residence if i default they can't go after more than what they're owed and since these lenders let's say on the refi side where we're capped at 75% mm-hmm. um, if you do a 75% loan on, let's say, a $200,000 property, so it's a $150,000 loan, if they seize that property, that $200,000 property and sell it, mm-hmm. they, they can only walk with what they're owed. You get the difference. So a lot of people think they'll lose their whole portfolio over one property. They can't go after more than what they're owed.
0: I like that because then it sounds like, okay, I owe you a hundred thousand dollars. You sell my $200,000 house for me and then you give me my money. Yeah, <laughs> so, it's almost a like, realtor forum. <laughs> yeah, if you're in a bad situation, it actually sounds like this is almost helpful to you. Clearly yeah. not the situation you wanna be in, but okay, but that's, yeah. that's actually then um, really helpful to know. Um, but okay, I like the idea that with those reserves that it can come from a friend that it's not something that needs to be that seasoned money. Um, it's not as kind of strict. And is that a new requirement due to the pandemic or is that something that you've seen no, um, so, traditionally, even in 2019?
1: Yeah, so before the pandemic, 90% of the industry only required six months. Once the pandemic happened, most of my lenders now require 12. Um, I think I only have one that requires six actually, most do 12. But okay. you know, if you borrow the money from a friend or something, put into your account, if they see you put a large amount in the past week, just to meet the reserves requirement, they might ask for a letter of explanation, but it's not something they dig into. You can just say, you know, I borrowed it from somebody or it was payback from an investment or you know, something like that, it's not audited. Um, It's a lot more relaxed industry.
0: Gotcha, I I like that. I feel like this is really gonna be an opportunity for so many of our listeners to be able to go after that rental property that they've been looking for, but have not been able to kind of go through traditional. So what would you say is the um, most typical area that people are looking for loans in right now?
1: In terms of city? Yeah. So since I do it in 45 states, um, right now, my biggest market is Richmond, Virginia, and Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, Okay. I made my mark when I first joined the industry, my first like seven deals were in Texas. That's where I was marketing to It's a big state. It's a pretty good cash flowing area. Um, So Houston, San Antonio, Atlanta, Tampa, Richmond, and Charlotte are my main markets. But as you see on the reports, Idaho has had the highest appreciation. So I'm sure there's a lot of cash outs going on in Idaho right now. (laughs) But those are my main markets right now.
0: Andrea, I'm not surprised to hear Charlotte on that list. I think we have yeah. all kind of know that that's just been a, a very hot market lately. Yeah. And Idaho, yes. I actually um, have spoken to somebody recently from Idaho and just talking about property values over there. It's, mm-hmm. it's just insane. So that is interesting that you've had so many people coming to you for those cash out refinances and to really be able to use them that equity from their property.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so when somebody comes to you, what are when you're having that initial conversation with them, What are kind of those like bells that go off on your head that you're like, this is fantastic. This is absolutely the ideal person that I can be able to help.
1: Well, if somebody comes to me for a quote and they want to explore financing, if they don't really know how the industry works, that's totally fine. That's a broker's job is to help and guide them um, and also find them the best terms. So if they have questions, they're confused. I'm not turned off by that. I'm fine with that. Um, in terms of the most ideal client and somebody who I'm excited to work with, it's somebody who's responsive. I speak with a lot of investors. I mean, I, I probably speak with 150 investors a week, like continuously, not just one, you know, email type of thing. Um, so if it's somebody who wants to move forward, or if it's somebody who comes to me for a quote completing that quote right away. And if I asked any questions about the property, having a reasonable response the same day or something um, Mm -hmm. that lets me know you're valuing my time because I do do a lot of loans. Um, I am very busy. I had to bring on a full-time assistant to help manage the workload. So if I'm going to bust my butt to get you closed in three weeks, I want you to value my time and be responsive with sending over docs quickly. I mean, us being able to close faster than conventional is only realistic at the borrower, if the investor is quick mm-hmm. as well. So somebody who hustles and moves is my ideal situation.
0: Gotcha. And I think that's really important too. Like we are the ones asking for this help. We are the ones asking for this yeah. loan. So, yeah. and it's perfectly fine if this is something that, one of our listeners is new to yeah. that is still saying, Hey, I'm going to move forward with this and I'm, I need help kind of navigating it. And I love the fact that you are willing to speak to them and have kind of that educational aspect to it and help people walk through it. And as that really is customer service is such a large part of, of your yeah. job, but it is important that if we're asking for that help, that we do follow through. Right. Yeah. And it's okay if we're not necessarily like a hundred percent, like ready to go where maybe we think we have a property and it, Ends up not working out, and then we kind of have to start and find find another deal, right? We all know kind of properties are getting picked up on the market pretty quick right now. But it's more really what our intent is, right? Our intent is to come in and say, "Hey, we want to work with you. Uh, We need your help. Let's let's get going on this, and let's really work as a team and as a partnership to kind of get this deal closed." So I hear that. What types of people that on the other side are you not able to help? Who is kind of not your ideal client?
1: Somebody who is seeking 100%. Um, somebody who comes to me and has no money for reserves or um, I don't do rehab loans. So somebody who needs rehab, I, I can't touch those. I mean, I, I legally can. It's not an industry I care to be in. Um, it's got a very high fall through rate with deals. Um, mm-hmm. So I stay away from the fix and flip stuff. Um, okay. That, that's typically the main thing uh, are, are those two scenarios. Someone who's wanting hundred percent financing or wanting rehab stuff.
0: Right. And that makes sense. If you're really, once again, you're lending on the asset and the cash flow that's included in that. So right. once again, if it's a gut rehab, there is no cash there's flow. There's no it cash. Can't, it can't be rented. It's,
1: it's costing you a thousand a month. You're not Correct. making anything.
0: Yeah. It sounds like once again, if there's if it's livable, if there's renters in there, yes, fine, you have to make some upgrades. That's then on us as the investor to right. say, okay, you know what? I have to paint, I have to replace this carpet. I have to do those cosmetic things. But yeah, really once fine. again, yes. It, it's because it's once totally again, fine. your appraiser needs to give you that, what that rent is gonna be. So fine, maybe the rent is a little bit lower until we do those upgrades, but that is right. totally different than doing the bird strategy, the yeah. gut renovations, those complete fix, fix and loan. flips. Yeah. Is that that's not your bread and butter here.
1: Yeah, and, and we, can, we can do loans on properties that need updating. But not actual rehab, if that makes sense. Like things we won't lend on is if there's roof damage and there's leaking, if there's plumbing issues, uh, electrical issues, those are big red flags that the property isn't habitable. Um, if you want to update the carpet, or if you have a 1970s kitchen and want to update that, those sort of things are fine. Those are you are doing if you want to customize. Um, the, our question is, can we put a renter in there tomorrow? and it not be against the law for them to live on the property. You know, there's there's no caving in roof <laughs> or anything. Like that's kind
0: of key. Yeah. <laughs> so it that's, sounds, but it sounds like then somebody that you could help is somebody that went through maybe a hard money lender, got a rehab loan. Yeah. Then now come to you months later to do that cash out refinance. That, it sounds like you can help them at that time.
1: That's a lot of my business, a lot. Because before the gotcha. pandemic, I had uh, lenders who had no seasoning period. So somebody could buy a home all cash or however they go about it, rehab it. And if it's a slight rehab, be done in two or three weeks and instantly refi the cash out with me. Now my lenders are at three months seasoning, but I'd say that's 50% of my business are these birth strategy investors.
0: I love knowing that. And then once again, three months is still so much better. That's half the yeah. time as most traditional lenders, which mm-hmm. are requiring six months seasoning period. Yeah. So the fact that you can you can help investors get their money back out And half the time is absolutely Mm -hmm. huge. I can see why that's such a draw to you.
1: Yeah, and we can actually start the process at two months and just close it on the three-month seasoning day. So (laughs) there's no month wasted.
0: No, there's absolutely no time wasted in that. I'm sure that's actually going to be a big help to to a lot of the ladies listening. Is there anything else that you would say Um, Are great people to be able to reach out to, to work with, or anything else that you want to say about working with non traditional lenders?
1: It's it's such an easier process. I, I have investors who have been doing this longer than I've been alive. So they've dealt with the traditional side before I was even a thought. And now that this industry in 2014 was formed, the non QM side, they'll never go back to that, even if they qualified. The rates on the non-traditional side are so competitive now that it's almost bank loan. Um, the approval, it's so much less docs, it's quicker, it's not on credit. Um, and there's more than one person on title. Let's say two investors come to me, they, they're both on title. We will actually take the person with the highest credit score and use them for the approval and give them the better rate instead of you know where a bank might not do that. So the whole process is easier not being on your credit. So it doesn't alter your personal DTI. So if you want to buy a car or a house, these loans look like they don't exist. Somebody pulls your credit and it'll show a private mortgage lender pulled your credit however long ago, but nothing else happened after that. So it looks like you applied for a mortgage and then backed out. But in reality, you have the mortgage. It's just not on your credit.
0: Exactly. It's not showing all of a sudden that um, that extra debt that you have um, from all those properties as well. So that's that's really helpful. Gotcha. I think that there's going to be a lot more people that are going to want to start looking into non-traditional lending after hearing this episode. it's, It's a
1: very growing industry. Very big.
0: Yes, no, this is incredibly helpful. I think it's going to help a lot of people out there that one are in traditional situations, but just you can offer so many extra benefits to them. And then those other women that are kind of in that position where they can't necessarily go that traditional route and have been pulling their hair out, trying to figure out what a solution is. I, I think yeah. you're going to be getting a lot of phone calls. So for any of our listeners, I will make sure to link Timothy's information down in the show notes. So do feel free to reach out to him to see if he can help you with getting a non-traditional mortgage or also doing a refinance. So Timothy, thank you so much for being on this week's episode. I really appreciate you being here today.
1: Thank, thank you for having me. It was It was very fun uh, hopefully very informative for everybody. Um, we we had a good time. Maybe we'll do it again.
0: Yes. I think we're going to have to have you back on and kind of then break down some of these loans a little bit, a little bit more. So we'll definitely schedule a time to do that for all of our other listeners. Please do make sure to click that subscribe button on podcasts or on our YouTube channel. So you do not miss the next episode of the lady landlords podcast, which comes out every Tuesday. Thanks for listening and see you all next week. Well, I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please do me a favor and leave a five-star review for the Lady Landlord's podcast. This helps make sure to share a message with others that can use the similar information. Thank you very much for helping grow our community. Remember, there's a new episode every single Tuesday, and I'll see you back in the Lady Landlord's Facebook group.